Good afternoon to those of you in the East. Good morning to everyone else. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing general surgeon as well as a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. State level drug paraphernalia laws prevent people who use drugs from accessing the means to reduce their risk of infection or overdose. This makes non-medical drug use even more dangerous because the laws often prevent access to clean needles and syringes, along with products to test drugs for deadly contaminants. The purpose of drug paraphernalia laws is to discourage illicit drug use. Instead, they produce avoidable disease and death. Drug prohibition makes peaceful, voluntary drug users risk losing their liberty and often losing their lives. Similarly, paraphernalia laws increase the risk that users will lose their lives. States vary in how they define drug paraphernalia. In response to a growing appreciation for the value of proven harm reduction strategies to address overdose deaths and the spread of deadly infectious diseases from intravenous drug use, some states have amended or sought to amend their laws to prevent harm reduction, pro to, to permit harm reduction programs and tools. For example, many states allow syringe services programs, often called SSPs, formerly called needle exchange programs, to operate within narrowly defined parameters. On June 7th, the Cato Institute released a policy analysis that I co-authored with public health researcher Sophia Heimowitz entitled Drug Paraphernalia Laws Undermine Harm Reduction. And you can link to that at the bottom of this event webpage or at cato.org. We compared the paraphernalia laws of all 50 states in the District of Columbia and whether the definition of drug paraphernalia includes syringes and or fentanyl test strips. Most states do not specifically cite fentanyl test strips, but rather include as paraphernalia any materials that can test the purity of controlled substances. We found, for example, that Alaska has no laws restricting drug paraphernalia, which leaves residents with a maximum freedom to design syringe services programs and other harm reduction initiatives. Of the other 49 states and the District of Columbia, 40 define drug paraphernalia to include syringes and 45 include testing materials. 35 states and the District of Columbia limit both syringes and testing equipment. Four states limit syringes, but not testing materials, whereas nine states limit purity testing equipment, but not syringes. Only South Carolina excludes both syringes and testing from emissions of drug paraphernalia, allowing, allowing SSPs to operate without restrictions. SSPs exist in most states, including some states where they are illegal. States that legally authorize SSPs impose various restrictions on their structure and operation, as well as on state level funding opportunities. Restrictions on how SSPs operate limit their scope, hamper their success, and work against the goal of reducing the spread of disease. The goal of drug paraphernalia policy should be to save lives by reducing the risks of overdose and disease. This means removing government barriers to obtaining and distributing clean syringes and drug testing equipment. Because Alaska leaves residents free to purchase syringes and other paraphernalia in any quantity, anyone can operate an SSP and implement other harm reduction measures. Our policy analysis concludes that states should follow Alaska's lead by repealing their drug paraphernalia laws so that programs aimed at reducing overdoses and disease can proliferate and succeed. To discuss the impact of drug paraphernalia laws on health and how states can implement better rules, we're pleased to have with us Corey S. Davis, the director of the Harm Reduction Legal Project of the Network for Public Health Law and adjunct faculty at the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University. 
Robin Lutz, Executive Director of the Alaskan AIDS Assistance Association, providing harm reduction services in Alaska since 1985, and Haley B. Coles, Executive Director of Snore and Prevention Works, which has been engaged in harm reduction and syringe services in Arizona since 2010. After each of our experts share their thoughts, we'll engage in a conversation and take questions from viewers. Please submit your questions on the Cato event website or on Facebook or Twitter and use the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. And be sure to visit the Cato Institute event page for links to additional materials associated with this event. Let me begin with Corey. Corey, you've published on this issue extensively, and I must admit it was your work that actually initially drew my attention to the issue and inspired my colleague and I to write up our policy analysis. And you published research just this recently in May in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence, comparing states regarding public access to drug checking equipment. By the way, that study is also linked at the bottom of this event page. Corey, please share your thoughts with us. Great, thanks, Jeff, uh, and thanks for uh, thanks for pulling this together. So, you know, when you asked me to to do this, I was kind of thinking, you know, what what should I say? You know, what should I talk about? I don't want to just rehash um, your great uh, report, you know, and, and talk about this number of states do this, this number of states do that. You know, we have. Um, we have reports and, and papers that do that. So I thought, you know, what what should I talk about? And, and what I decided to, you know, to talk about for just a couple minutes is, you know, kind of a little bit more about how we might make this happen, right? I think we all agree that states need to get rid of these paraphernalia laws. Um, how do we get them to do that? So I have this idea. I don't know if you'll agree, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that the federal government really needs to step in here. And, you know, I think of it as the federal government, you know, making the reality of their actions more closely match their rhetoric. You know, so recently the feds have really changed the way they're talking about the war on drugs, right? So President Biden talked about in a State of the Union address, the White House put out this press release in conjunction um, with the State of the Union, you know, where they talk about expanding SSPs and increasing access to fentanyl test strips. And it actually says that the federal government is making these, you know, key federal drug policy priorities. You know, th those, are, those are the administration's words. And then every year, supposedly every year, the Trump administration skipped a few, but supposedly every, every year, the administration puts out these national drug control strategies. And these are sort of guiding documents that say, you know, what is the federal government going to focus on in the coming year? And they set these sort of non-binding goals. Well, the 2022 one has these goals of increasing um, the number of SSPs in the United States by 85% in the next three years and increasing the number of SSPs that offer fentanyl test strips and other drug checking equipment. And, and there's lots of this sort of harm reduction rhetoric. And, you know, this is good, right? For those of us who have been around for a while, you know, forever, these documents focused on interdiction, you know, the ONDCP was run by literal military generals and the language is all about, you know, waging a literal war on drugs, which of course means a war on people who use drugs, right? So the rhetoric has changed, right? And, 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 you know, that's good. But what's the problem? Well, the problem is, as your report notes, as all of us know, you know, in most states, the things that the federal government says it wants are literally illegal, 
right? It is literally illegal to just give out syringes in almost every state. And even where states have changed their laws to permit syringe services programs to operate, oftentimes there's all kinds of uh, restrictions and requirements and obstacles to them actually doing that. And even where they can operate, they generally have don't have the funding that they need. You know, so, um, and, and of course, fentanyl test strips, as you said, are arguably illegal in, in a fair number of states as well, right? So that's all in the report. The report is great. Everybody should read the report. I want to highlight why. Like, why is that the case? Like, this is not an accident. What happened was in 1979, the DEA created a model paraphernalia law that was extremely broad. Okay, before 1979, only a handful of states had comprehensive paraphernalia laws. It was just not a thing. 1979, DEA makes this very, very broad paraphernalia law that makes it illegal to do basically anything um, with paraphernalia, to have it, to give it away, to sell it, um, to use it. They pushed it out to the states, and within about five years or so, the vast majority of states had adopted it many of them literally word for word. You know, that's why when you look at the paraphernalia laws, you'll see, you know, they start to blend together. That's because they were literally copied <laughs> word for word um, from this model law that the DEA put out, you know, uh, 40 years ago. Now, as we know, these laws are bad. They do nothing to decrease um, drug use. What they do is they make people sick. They increase overdose rates. They result in human beings being put into cages. And, and for people who don't care about those things, they also cost a lot of money, cost all of us a lot of money. And of course, you know, like most criminal laws, they especially target black people, other minoritized uh, populations, poor people, you know, just like most criminal laws, right? So these are addressable problems, right? If the Biden administration really wants its actions to match its rhetoric, it should go out and try to change what the states are doing, right? So, you know, and I think that the fact that most of these state laws trace back to this model law that the DEA put out, you know, the federal government sort of has this moral obligation to try to undo the harm that it's done. Right. But, you know, they don't talk about doing that. Right. You know, um, so, you know, the, the report talks about this model law that ONDCP has, you know, paid this nonprofit to to develop. And, and, and the, the report is, is, you know, kind of positive about that. I actually think that I don't like that model law. <laughs> I think that that's a bad idea. I think that the whole premise is flawed. Because that model law that this, you know, ONDCP paid for and is now kind of, you know, touting as this, this harm reduction measure, you know, it still has that baseline that uh, syringes and other um, injecting and, and drug using equipment are illegal, right? That people who have them are criminals. People who give them away are criminals. And they only become legal if you can access an SSP. But of course, as we all know, you know, SSPs are few and far um, between, you know, so these laws still make you a criminal if you live in a place where you can't, you can't easily access um, an SSP. So, so that's ridiculous, right? That's absurd. 
the administration can try to change that, right? There are a lot of levers um, that the federal government can pull to, you know, to try to get states to do what they want. And we know that because we saw that happen in the early 80s where the DEA went around and tried to get states to pass the current uh, paraphernalia law. They couldn't say, hey, we messed up, you know, or even, you know, look, this seemed like a good idea at the time. We now realize this is not a good idea. You know, we now want you to repeal your paraphernalia laws. We don't want you to adopt this, you know, convoluted SSP law where, you know, we want you to just get rid of your paraphernalia laws. And also here is a bunch of money to make sure that syringes and, you know, um, other equipment. I mean, we're not even getting in to get into the whole, you know, capitulation <laughs> of the administration with this, you know, racist, um, you know, rhetoric about crack pipes that the, the federal government, you know, the, the administration just totally capitulated to. But anyway, this is what I would like us to talk more about. You know, going state by state uh, is something that advocates have been doing. It's something that we help people do. You know, um, there's really great work going on, but it's extremely time consuming. It's difficult. It's expensive to go state by state by state. The federal government really has, you know, the responsibility to right the wrongs um, that it has caused in the past. And they need to do that. You know, um, I just stop it. You know, I, the, the, the secretary of, of HHS, you know, put out a couple of months ago um, this press release. Where he, completely co-opted this phrase that people in harm reduction have been saying for a long time, which is that the war on drugs is really a war on people. Now, this is true. Like, this is a fact. The war on drugs is a war on people. Um, if the administration wants to take our words and put them in their mouths, they need to change what they're doing, right? They need to make their actions match their rhetoric. So I'll, I'll stop there and I apologize if that wasn't exactly what you wanted me to talk about, but I think that that's just a really important thing to, um, an idea to put forward. Actually, I think that was, uh, I really, that that was very uh, important food for thought and I'm glad you uh, brought up that idea. Uh, and we'll talk maybe more about it later on. First, I wanna uh, move on to uh, Robin. Uh, Robin is the executive director of one of Alaska's longest running harm reduction projects. We're all anxious to learn how harm reduction efforts work in a state that doesn't have drug paraphernalia laws. So, Robin? Hi, good, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> so my name's Robin Lutz. I'm with the Alaskan AIDS Assistance Association. I'm um, coming in from Anchorage on Denina land this morning. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I'm the ED up here at the Alaskan AIDS Assistance Association. And we serve the entire state providing HIV services and HIV prevention and harm reduction work. Um, like the intro said, we've been in existence since 1985. And I think like many HIV service organizations um, came to the embrace of harm reduction. You know, in the late 80s, mid 90s is when we opened up our SSP. Um, I've been with the organization in different roles since 2011. I've uh, been involved in harm reduction and HIV work since 1996. And, um, you know, the, the, this conversation was really interesting to me because I think 
we get a little insular up here in Alaska and uh, forget some of the struggles that are happening in the lower 48, especially around drug paraphernalia, um, you know, because we have our own struggles as well. I think it's really interesting to compare Alaska to states like Arizona, um, both because we don't have the laws, but also because we didn't go through the process of repealing anything. Right. Um, we just never had them. We're, which is pretty indicative of how our state goes. We're a little wild west in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, that has a lot of positive outcomes for some public health initiatives. Um, it definitely allowed us to start and run an SSP without the difficulties that a lot of other SSPs have had. Um, so currently we have uh, two offices we run services out of one here in anchorage which is on the road system i'll talk more about that in a minute and then we run one out of Juneau, alaska which is the state capital uh, Juneau is not connected to the rest of the state via road system um, and our Juneau office serves a lot of smaller southeast communities which are also only accessible by a uh, boat or plane so you can't drive to your ssp um, you know, you live in, um, you live in Huna, you can't drive to Juno to pick up clean syringes. And then we also, uh, we have a mobile van and with that mobile van, we provide services out, uh, to an area north of Anchorage, uh, the Matanuska Susitna Valley, which is a really large geographic area, um, south of Talkeetna and south of Denali. So those are the areas we serve directly with our SSP. Um, statewide, there is and has been for the about, I would say the last five to seven years, a real growing appreciation and embrace of harm reduction methodology among other public health organizations and other nonprofits, um, other medical providers, which has been great. Uh, it's given us a lot more allies across the state. Uh, it's given us a lot of great opportunity for collaboration. Uh, we provide a lot of technical assistance to uh, small communities who recognize that they have people who really need access to clean works and want to assist with that. We provide a lot of assistance to users in different areas who really want to work within their community, um, get clean supplies out there. Um, and I think the biggest problems that we run into up here outside of our geographic issues, right? Um, of just distribution. Distribution in itself is a challenge. Um, but the other biggest things we run into is although we don't have the same problems with law enforcement, specifically as other states, uh, we still have a huge amount of stigma. Um, we, you know, Anchorage is, I would call purple, um, but the rest of our state is not. And um, we, there's, we have a lot of work to do still in the state around stigma and that affects folks who utilize our programs in a lot of different ways. Um, we, the biggest things we encounter is uh, difficulty accessing any medical care um, in a way that's affirming or non-stigmatizing, which keeps people out of care. Um, there is a overall lack of understanding and education in the medical community here. Um, one exception to that is we have a very, uh, positive collaboration with Indian Health Service up here. Um, they embrace harm reduction in many communities and are able to provide some limited supplies, um, which leads to the second problem, uh, which any community up in Alaska that is trying to provide information and supplies to folks is just um, money. Uh, we don't have the money we need to meet the demand. Our program specifically, we, we average giving out about a million syringes a year um, you know, in the 
alas, the state population, I believe, hovers around 800,000 people. Um, we take in almost that amount every year. Um, and with that number, which is pretty staggering for a state our size, um, in two of our communities that we serve, we're able to go to a needs-based model, which is obviously what we want and what people need, um, which means we can give out as many supplies as someone wants and needs. Um, they can distribute those supplies to whoever wants and needs them. They can get their needs met. Um, and take home what they need. Um, and in Anchorage, we can't do that because we do not have the financial resources to support it. So our model in Anchorage remains uh, loose. We call it one-to-one -one ratio, which means um, we're never gonna turn someone away. Uh, you'll always walk away with this pack of 10 syringes no matter what you bring. Um, but other than that, we match um, to what folks bring in. And that just continues to be heartbreaking for us because we know that's not what people need. So the scramble is always, um, you know, how can we get funds and to buy those syringes? So, you know, those are our struggles. I think it's, um, I can't wait to hear more from our colleagues in Arizona about what things look like there and pretty excited about this conversation. So thanks for letting me join. Thank you, Robin. By the way, Robin, uh, I, I think it's important to make it clear to our viewers because um, if, if uh, anybody's read our policy analysis or any of the work by Corey, you know, they'll know that many states actually impose like one for one exchanges rules on the syringe services programs that they allow. And that's not what you're talking about in Alaska. You're just talking about that realities of your supply make you require a one to one exchange in order to have enough for everybody. Am I right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Which you know goes against harm reduction best practices. It goes against what people need, um, and it. I think it just speaks to the what was mentioned before. Like there's a, a federal need here, um, that you know even states where there's no legal problems, the impact is the same, right? On our on our folks, the impact is that they can get what they need. Okay, before we hear from Haley, I just want to provide full disclosure, I recently joined the Board of Directors of Sonoran Prevention Works, one of Arizona's longest running harm reduction programs. So Haley, in May 2021, the Arizona legislature finally made SSPs explicitly legal in our state. Uh, yet for years, your organizations worked with other harm reduction organizations in Arizona to help get clean syringes and other materials to people in the community who use drugs. Uh, please share your story with us. Yeah, thank you so much for this important conversation and for having us. Um, so as Dr. Singer mentioned, I'm with Sonoran Prevention Works. We are a statewide nonprofit organization working um, all over Arizona, um, and our mission is to build a safe and healthy Arizona for people who use drugs. We do that from the micro to the macro. So we conduct street outreach, we operate syringe service programs, we um, do HIV and hepatitis C testing, as well as peer support. We also work with agencies and institutions who work with people who use drugs to support them in providing better care. Um, and then we do policy work. So as Dr. Singer mentioned, um, we worked on two laws that passed last year. Um, that was uh, syringe service program law, SB 1250, um, and then a law that legalized fentanyl test strips, that was SB 1486. And as I will discuss later, those laws may no longer be relevant to the changes that we've seen in the drug market here in Arizona. Um, but 
one of our really big successes um, is despite the changing laws over the years, we've distributed uh, nearly 700,000 doses of naloxone and had nearly 20,000 overdose reversals reported to us. So um, we have been able to be creative in how we engage with people and that has led to, um, we know thousands and thousands of lives saved. Um, as was discussed in Dr. Singer's paper, drug paraphernalia laws really are the mechanism um, that prohibits better health and survival for people who use drugs, along with um, prohibition of drugs. Um, and interestingly, Arizona's paraphernalia law is uh, twice as restrictive as the federal paraphernalia law. So there's a list of verbs um, that are used to describe what could, could or couldn't be considered paraphernalia. And in the federal regulations, um, it's 10 verbs. For Arizona, it's 21 verbs. Um, and so for a state with heavy libertarian leanings, I find that to be paradoxical. Um, we have had programs in operation since the 90s here in Arizona. Um, the, the first one was down in Tucson, and Tucson is um, far more progressive than the rest of the state. And so there was um, there were agreements between law enforcement, health department, about a county board of supervisors to allow these programs that were set up in the height of the HIV crisis. Um, but outside of that, programs did operate in a gray area where syringes were still considered to be paraphernalia, but um, one did not need a prescription to obtain a syringe at a pharmacy. So that kind of created um, a little bit of confusion that we supported programs to thrive in. Um, but in 2021, we got some laws passed. So we spent four years, far more than four years actually, closer to 10 years, but we had the same bill in the legislature four years in, the, in a row um, to legalize syringe service programs. Um, and then uh, the very first year that our fentanyl test strip bill was introduced, it passed. Um, the motivator for, I think, a lot of our legislators around this law was not so much the um, HIV and hepatitis C component of syringe service programs, but the fact that programs are a way to engage with people who are underground, under-resourced, who are not engaging with other resources. Um, and we know that that is true, right? That's how we've been able to distribute all of this naloxone um, is we bring people into our programs because we are non-judgmental and we're there to provide them with immediate needs um, to help them survive. And that's then how we're able to build those relationships, get out messaging about overdose prevention and connect people to other kinds of care if that's what they want. Um, Rather than deregulate the paraphernalia laws, both of those laws um, added. So again, a little paradoxical in a libertarian-leaning state that we are adding more to the regulations, um, but these additions created exemptions for fentanyl test strips as well as for programs um, that, were, that were operating syringe service programs. Um, the, the, the one nice thing I think about being one of the last states to implement these laws, so our naloxone law, we were the 48th state to implement our syringe service program law, I think we were like the 38th state, um, is that we've been able to learn from other states' mistakes. So um, some of the positives about our syringe service program law is that um, it doesn't require registration. It allows for virtually any entity to operate a program which is really important because our state is so different from one corner to the next. 
Um, and so there are different needs, there's different capacities, um, and it doesn't bottleneck the process by creating heavy regulation. Most of the requirements for these programs are evidence-based and they're low barrier, allowing you know, small community-based programs to legally set them up. Um, and it does provide immunity for participants, staff, and volunteers of the programs. Um, some of the components that were less than ideal of our law is that um, while there is immunity, it requires proof um, that a person is a participant, a staff member, or a volunteer. Um, that immunity is only for injection-related supplies. Um, and then there is a requirement that the same amount of syringes that the program brings in, um, or I'm sorry, the same amount that the program gives out, the program must bring in. So it's nice that it doesn't put the onus on the participant, um, it, but it does put the onus on the program to ensure that we are uh, collecting enough syringes. Um, and then with 1486, which was our fentanyl test strip law, um, I had advocated to just remove the verb testing from the paraphernalia statute, um, but uh, that didn't work out. Um, instead, what happened is that there was an exception added to the paraphernalia law that said, unless it is a fentanyl test strip, um, then it is not considered to be illegal. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we spent all of these years doing all of this work. And now in 2022, it may no longer be relevant. So in Arizona, what we've seen is a huge pivot from injecting drugs like heroin to smoking fentanyl. Um, so while there are still lots of people who are unintentionally using fentanyl, um, there are lots more who know that they are using fentanyl and they're choosing to use it. The way that fentanyl comes here in Arizona is in pills. Those pills burn really easily, so they can't be cooked down to be injected. Um, so they are made to be smoked. Um, what this means is that our syringe service program law, which provides immunity for syringes and injection-related material, doesn't folks aren't, aren't using injection-related material anymore. What we need to be able to do is give them smoking supplies. We need to be able to give out foil. We need to be able to give out lighters and pipes. And again, this is about engagement. This is how we bring people into our programs and connect them with other resources. We have to give them the supplies that are urgently needed. And those supplies are, are decreasingly syringes. It is smoking supplies. Um, and as I predicted with the fentanyl test strip law, um, there are lots of other contaminants now that are showing up in people's drugs. Um, so we've got xylazine, we've got isotonidazine, we've got all kinds of other things that based on our paraphernalia law, you can't test them legally, right? If you have a xylazine test strip, that is still considered to be illegal. Um, testing machines such as mass spectrometers are considered to be paraphernalia, therefore they're illegal. Um, so we're really back to square one in some ways, um, and needing to go back and revise the paraphernalia laws every year or every couple of years based on the changes that are happening in, in drug markets and in use trends is not only inefficient, but it is leading to deaths, right? We need to be able to quickly adapt, um, and address the needs of people who are using drugs in these shifting drug markets. Um, but if I have to go back to the legislature and advocate for four more years for a change to be made, 
by the time that change is made, there's going to be something new that's happening and we're going to be losing even more people um, to preventable harms. So um, that's kind of what's what's been going on in Arizona. We had some major wins, um, but we need to be able to shift and adapt. And it is the paraphernalia laws that are getting in the way of that. Haley, that was really valuable. And you, you, you just, you know, generate a whole bunch of questions uh, that I'd like to direct to, to everyone. First of all, uh, it, it it turns out that, um, you know, fentanyl is cheaper to make and move than heroin. So uh, we all are familiar on this panel with the iron law of prohibition that uh, prohibition, you know, incentivizes the development of more potent and compact forms of, uh, of whatever is prohibited. So here we have a situation in Arizona where, and some of it could be exacerbated by the COVID pandemic as well, which created maybe supply chain problems with the, you know, the production of heroin from the, the plant and then, and then moving it across borders. Uh, so fentanyl just became much more practical for drug dealers. So on the other hand, if smoking fentanyl, you're, you could at least uh, titrate the dose a little better instead of getting one giant dose into your veins. So that's a little safer and, and you're not injecting. So you're less exposed to hepatitis virus and HIV. But um, this is an interesting change we're seeing happen. And of course, prohibition is, is very dynamic. Things are always changing. So uh, you had mentioned, Haley, that this is regional. And I read also that up in the Seattle, Washington area, also they're seeing a lot more people smoking uh, fentanyl rather than injecting heroin and or fentanyl. What are you noticing up in uh, Alaska in that regard, Robin? So we tend to be a couple months to years behind a lot of trends that get seen in the lower 48. Uh, we, though, saying that we've seen a definite shift up here to smoking um, over the last year or so. It's been smoking primarily meth. Um, but we have started to see the fentanyl mix with that. So we, we know what's coming. Um, we are also working to um, make that shift in the supplies we have available. So we're focusing on making sure that we do have some smoking supplies available up here. And uh, we just kind of look to our participants to see what they need and what they're asking for. So we are hearing that more and more. Corey, uh, when uh, the ONDCP suggested making smoking uh, equipment available to harm reduction organizations, they got a whole lot of pushback. It was demagogued by uh, a lot of politicians and they sort of walked it back. Um, maybe you can get, elaborate more on why that's an important uh, harm reduction uh, tool. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would say that that, you know, just that whole fracas is just an example, I think, of the this sort of lack of an actual pivot um, from the rhetoric to the reality. So what happened there was there was for the first time ever um, this provision of the American Rescue Plan Act that allocated $30 million to harm reduction programs. And, and other folks can talk about how that worked out in practice. But um, there was this sort of bad faith um, reporting from some right-wing outlets that, oh, the federal government is going to buy people crack pipes. And um, instead of, you know, the ONDCP and HHS saying, you know, 
Yes. <laughs> In fact, this is what we're trying to do. We want people to have the supplies that they need to use drugs more safely. That is what Congress intended. That is what we're going to do. Um, they said, no, absolutely not. You know, we're definitely not doing that. Um, you know, so we, we talk a lot about the importance of syringes, you know, um, because, you know, as a physician, you know, when you're breaking the, 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 the skin barrier there, you are, you know, it's easier to spread, um, you know, but to spread disease, right? People don't have access to enough new syringes, um, you know, people end up sharing them, you know? Um, so if everybody has access to all the syringes they need, you prefer to use a new one, um, you do that, right? So, um, and even just if you um, don't need to share, even just reusing syringes, you know, it can, it can tear you up. It can lead to abscesses. It can, you know, increase your chances of getting infective endocarditis if you don't have um, materials to, to clean the injection site and so on. So we, you know, we, that gets a lot of, of attention, but a lot of those things also apply to, um, to smoking equipment, right? To, to stems and, and other things that people use um, to, to, to smoke drugs with. You can share them. Um, and you can spread um, disease that way. And also just, you know, people use all kind of improvised stuff. You can burn your lips, you know, you can, you know, get, um, you know, just get all kinds of bad stuff <laughs> happen to you if you don't have access to, you know, safe, um, safer um, smoking equipment. So it's, you know, I, to me, it was just, it, it was just frankly, like a very racist sort of, um, uh, sort of thing that the administration just kind of bought into. And I thought it was really interesting that the, the objection was not, oh, you're giving, you know, you're giving these addicts needles to shoot up with, which is, you know, the, the, the previous sort of go-to. Um, I think it's actually kind of telling that they, they didn't go with that kind of maybe on the assumption that actually the public now recognizes that, um, you know, that that is a legitimate public health, you know, public safety intervention um, is kind of bought into the idea of, of syringe services programs, but, you know, thought they would, they would go into their bag of tricks and pull out the racist dog whistle. And it turned out to be highly effective. Um, I don't know. I would say, I would say, you know, when we do see, you know, this transition to smoking, we also see, you know, there are, again, you know, on the West coast in particular, we see a lot of people using stimulants, using particularly methamphetamine. And, um, you know, a lot of people smoking. So it's just really important to help people use as safely as possible. And, and smoking supplies are part of that. I think it's important. We actually, I got a, a question from uh, somebody who's viewing this online with that question. How does providing foil and smoking pipes save lives? I'm not following. So uh, in addition to what you just said, Corey, I'd like to hear, Robin, you, you, you would like, I think you'd like to help explain to people why that makes a difference. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, and I'm going back to also experience um, when we used to I work in communities where crack was a lot more prevalent, um, we would rely on what we called crack kits at the time or prevention methods for the same, you know, the same smoking um, harm reduction issues we see now. So like, um, like was just mentioned, you know, there's, first of all, um, risks associated with using anything that's hot, right, around your mouth. Um, it's really easy to develop sores and abscess. Um, and it's 
very, very helpful to have access to antibiotic cream and covers for a pipe and things that will help prevent transmission, especially if you're sharing with someone. Um, so there's there's public health benefits and benefits to an individual just for that, right? Just for the benefit of being able to keep themselves safer while they're smoking um, and smoking with other people. But also, um, you know, there's the whole, the whole other arm of effective harm reduction and effective SSPs is engagement, often just specifically peer engagement being the most effective. And that's the thing that really helps people have access to other to other things that they need in their life, whether that's basic medical care or whether that's information or HIV or HCV testing or possibly treatment. Um, without that environment of an SSP that removes the stigma and judgment from an interaction with someone outside the community of drug users um, or who can be a bridge to that, um, you know, best case scenario is that SSPs and uh, harm reduction organizations are staffed by people who have lived experience and who are using drugs. Um, but without that connection, um, you lose all of the, the secondary benefits of an SSP that have nothing to do with injection, right? Um, which is just overall health, um, uh, more, more likely to be able to access or maintain treatment if that's what someone wants, um, more likely to just access medical care, have better health outcomes. And so I think without, without remembering that arm of prevention and that human contact part that comes with SSPs and harm reduction programs, um, it's easy to just connect to, oh, well, are we having the same impact like in my organization on HIV prevention if we're working on smoking? The, and the answer is absolutely yes. Um, and we have to take the person as a whole, um, everything they need and think about how we can really connect them to things that help them you know, live their life and value their health in the way that they want to when they come to us. Haley, you want to Haley, you want to say anything to that as well, or? I I think that Robin said most of it. There there are some physical risks, right? If if people are using um, a makeshift pipe, I've seen pipes explode in people's faces, right? If we're sharing pipes or we're sharing straws, um, it's really easy to get those sores on your lips and to then be transmitting um, hepatitis um, C as well as HIV. But it really is about that engagement. So many of our programs, we really act as the primary care providers for our participants. They are not going to see other resources. They are um, avoiding medical settings despite having needles broken off in their arms, despite having open wounds. Um, they are avoiding those medical settings because of how they anticipate they will be treated. Um, they're, they are often struggling to um, engage with other social determinants. Um, so even something as simple as signing up for food stamps or getting a food box, um, so often that they're being discriminated against. And so they're just avoiding all of these resources. Um, and so effective programs are able to co-locate, are able to partner with other entities so that we can have a wound care nurse there. We can give out food boxes um, or we can have peer support who can then connect with folks outside of the program to help them access treatment, to help them get an ID, to help them deal with their legal issues. Um, so it, it, it is mostly about engagement and pulling people out of the shadows and saying, we don't want you to die. Your health is important to us. Um, now that you're here, let's talk about taking the next step in your journey. It's interesting. I have a comment online. Uh, I think this is on our on our event page. 
Anonymous says, I'm a harm reduction outreach worker who outreached an unhoused individual with a foil and a straw. The lady turned out to be pregnant. And as a result of me providing that foil, she engaged with me and went to treatment and is in the process of being reunited with her son. So that kind of uh, illustrates um, what you were talking about. Uh, another question I'd like to get to is about other types of testing devices. All the focus has been on fentanyl and uh, you brought up Haley and I'm sure everyone uh, in, the, in the field understands uh, be, because of the, the iron law prohibition and dynamism of, of uh, the black market, uh, there are a lot of other deadly, potentially deadly contaminants besides fentanyl and there are other devices um, that can test for it, which uh, in states that have passed laws legalizing fentanyl test strips are not covered. For example, uh, you know, there's spectrometry, spectrometry equipment that's used in Europe. Um, uh, I think you wrote about this a little bit, Corey, in your most recent paper that was in, that came out in May. Am, am I right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and again, I, I think that that sort of just, again, demonstrates the problem with sort of trying to piecemeal modify paraphernalia laws instead of just getting rid of them entirely. And again, I I understand the political realities in a lot of the states that you, you need, you know, a current crisis and then you can sometimes convince legislators to do something to address that crisis. And right now the crisis is fentanyl. But yeah, you know, as you say, you know, nobody really knows why it's fentanyl, right? Um, why is it not some other research chemical? Why is it not some other opioid? Why is it not a benzodiazepine? Nobody knows, you know, nobody knows. Um, and nobody knows what the big adulterant or contaminant is going to be in two years or three years, you know, it might be a different opioid. It might be a benzodiazepine. It might be a stimulant. We don't know. So, um, again, from where I sit, you know, from a legal and policy standpoint, that is, you know, that's why we should just be getting rid of these laws that make it impossible for people to have the equipment they need to help them uh, be safer. Haley, do you have, uh, I think you were mentioning to me the other day about some, uh, uh, devices other than the test strips that are, are is Sonora Prevention Works uh, using any of them? Uh, no, we're not using anything outside of the test strips. Um, and, and those devices, is, it's exactly what you all mentioned. It's the mass spectrometers, the FTIR. Um, there's a couple of different machines um, in order to really do comprehensive drug checking um, that will tell you uh, what is in the substance. It'll tell you the potency um, and how much of each contaminant is in the substance. Um, and that's what is needed. You know, we are finding out what contaminants are in people's drugs after they're dead, right? We're doing autopsies. We're drawing their blood. We're saying, oh, interesting. These kinds of things are in the drug market. But why are we waiting until people are dead to find out what is in the drugs, what is causing those overdoses when we could be proactively finding out what is in the drugs now. Um, and we know we've seen it with fentanyl test strips. When people slow down, when they find out what's in their substance, even if they do choose to use it, they're taking steps like ensuring that naloxone is around. They're, they're mixing with other substances less. They're using less. Um, they're making sure that they're not using by themselves. So we know that people do take life-saving steps 
when they know what's in the substances that they're taking. And so without these machines, especially with the advent of all these different contaminants that are showing up now outside of fentanyl, um, we're, we're just in the same position where we're only going to find this out after people are dead. Robin, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, so we don't, we also don't have any devices like that. Um, we have a very, very lucky partnership that isn't at a cost to us that lets us um, send a sample of our used needles out for um, analysis and it gives us a little snapshot every couple months of what's in there, which is really helpful to us. Um, but, you know, like Haley said, that information is still too active to act. Um, and we see the same that uh, just as a rule, people will use the materials and information they have. So, you know, our community is great at like they, they take and use naloxone as much as we can provide, um, the same with the fentanyl strips. And, um, you know, I think the dream is to have the ability where, um, first of all, people don't have to test their drugs, right? Because there's regulation and no longer a prohibition, but at least um, being able to get to a place where people have access to anything that they need to test any supply they're using um, without interference or fear for criminalization. But at least in Alaska, there wouldn't be any legal obstruction to you obtaining one of, if you had the funding to get some of these uh, spectrometry devices, for example, you, there's, there's no legal barrier to that. That's right. And in Europe, for, for people who may not know this, in Europe, there are uh, a lot of places where people can drop off their drugs and organizations mm -hmm. test it using those devices and they give them a report. Um, and uh, one person, uh, I'm taking some questions now. One person has it, Robin Dan asks, since Alaska has no prohibition law for drug paraphernalia, do they have fewer overdoses? Um, you, so I guess that's an Alaska question, Robin. You want to talk to yeah. that? Yeah, man. I wish the answer to that was yes. It's not. Um, we have uh, our overdose deaths have risen each year, um, heavily impacted by the pandemic. We don't see uh, any connection between our lack of paraphernalia laws and that. Um, we see a connection between um, a lack of general resources, whether access to SSPs, um, access to naloxone. Um, and access to treatment for people who want it. We have a, a very um, limited access to MAT up here, um, especially in remote communities. So even though we don't have the laws, there's still a lot preventing people from successfully preventing overdose. It's important for people to understand that uh, SSPs reduce overdose, reduce overdoses. So without your organization, for example, it might even be worse than it is now. But it, that, but it doesn't guarantee that there's not going to be uh, more and more people uh, using dangerous drugs that they're unable to, to access uh, harm reduction organizations for. Well, uh, we're getting some people from Alaska uh, looking in. So Eliza in Alaska says, do, do, do your states put out drug crime lab reports detailing out the types of counterfeit pills and what are in them that have been seized by law enforcement? Of course, this is oftentimes too late, but curious, how are these reports being used, if at all? Um, I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go to uh, all three of you, actually. Let's start with Robin, though, since it's an Alaskan. 
Sure. Um, so like I said, we do see a reports from a small amount of uh, injection supplies that we turn in. Um, we haven't been able to do much to react to them yet, um, other than give out as many fentanyl test strips and Narcan kits as we can. Um, so that feels pretty limiting. I think that if we were able to, um, you know, help people get more supplies like that out into their own networks and communities, that would make a bigger impact. Um, I think what it has informed us is of the growing need of smoking supplies. So we are able to start reacting to that, um, but it still feels pretty limited. I think um, just the need, and uh, Corey just mentioned this in our internal chat here, like the need always outweighs the resources. And we see that in Alaska, you know, the need for Narcan always outweighs the amount of Narcan that we can distribute. Any, any uh, Haley, you want to say something to that? And then I'll ask Corey if he has anything to say. Yeah, I've I've on occasion seen those bulletins that come out from um, our local DEA office saying, hey, this has been seized. Here's what we know about it. Um, I, I don't see those bulletins very frequently, and they're very rarely directly sent to us. So it's sent out to somebody else who then sends it to us saying, hey, did you see this? Um, so, you know, I think that that speaks to uh, a lack of partnership. Um, as well as just a general lack of data collection um, and and value to data. You know, we um, there there is a a public facing dashboard um, within Arizona that talks about overdose deaths, but it's only uh, opioid overdose deaths. So it's not giving us information about overdose deaths where there's not opioids involved. Um, and it really doesn't give us very good individual level data. So it's not race specific. It doesn't tell us about people's housing status. Um, it's really just the bare minimum that, um, although it's gotten a little more sophisticated over time, it's still not incredibly useful to us. Um, several years ago, there was an issue where um, law enforcement agencies were getting zip code level data about where um, where the overdoses were occurring and they were sharing that with each other, but they were not allowed to share that with health departments. They were not allowed to share that with um, harm reduction organizations. And that's the information that we need, right? If we were able to see, oh, there's been an overdose surge in the last two weeks in this zip code, then we'll go start targeting that zip code for outreach. Um, but, you know, I, that's that's an issue of regulation apparently the the regulations prohibit that information from being shared with harm reduction and health department agencies which seems silly um and then again just a lack of of partnership and um lack of value that is placed on harm reduction organizations and our unique ability um to be to be able to address overdoses and trends that are happening right now so the answer is yes on occasion we get those reports but not nearly enough um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's often too late. Corey, I think you also wanted to comment. Yeah, no, I think Haley and Robin really covered it. I, I mean, um, I, I would just say, you know, to me, this is just another example of how the federal government and to some extent, the state governments, you know, just are not serious. Um, you know, if, if we were really serious about addressing this, there would be money put into collecting these data to making sure that health departments get the data, the public health organizations, the harm reduction organizations have the data, that they have the resources to rapidly react to the data. 
and it's just not there. I mean, what 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 Haley said is is true across the board. I mean, a lot of times law enforcement say, "Oh, we cannot share those data because there's an active investigation." You know, we'll give them to you. You know, and eight months or 12 months or 24 months when we're done with our priority, which is arresting, prosecuting, and incarcerating people. And that's true at every level of government. The priority is always punishing the people who are using drugs. It is almost never helping people who are using drugs. And until that changes, you know, it's just going to be folks like Robin and Haley, you know, busting their butts every day, doing the best that they can with a really, you know, bad legislative environment and without the resources that they need. So along uh, similar lines to what we're talking about, Dan Schneider, RPH, who is the pharmacist of the Netflix, says, uh, why fentanyl and not benzodiazepines? The key is, op the, uh, he goes, the key is opioids has two reasons. Uh, Cravings, but also withdrawals. I'm, I'm having trouble kind of making out his uh, the the whole phrasing here. But he says uh, the worst lately is a combination of fentanyl and benzodiazepines. MAT can help with cravings and withdrawals. We need to use this in harm reduction and treatment. Uh, so let's just look, look to the role. Why are we ignoring benzodiazepines? Is basically his question. I think we'd all agree that MAT is a very effective form of harm reduction and one of the uh, bonuses of SSPs is that when they connect with people, they oftentimes get them connected to MAT programs. But what about the role of benzos? Uh, Haley, what do you think about that? Um, you know, there is there are medications for opioid use disorder that are incredibly effective. That's methadone and buprenorphine. Um, and in some ways, I suppose it's convenient that this current overdose wave that we've been in for the last 15 years is opioids, because at least there is some kind of evidence-based treatment that is effective. Um, it's complicated with benzodiazepines and with stimulants because those medications don't exist or they're not researched. So it's a, it's, it's a lot easier to say, okay, we have this opioid overdose crisis and we have these solutions. And so we're gonna be opening up beds and we're gonna be increasing funding. Um, the solutions in terms of at least medication is not, is not the same way for other substances like benzodiazepines um, and stimulants. So what we need is more research. We need more innovation um, in the biomedical field to be finding these, um, these medication um, alternatives. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's really it. And there was a study that came out. I forgive me. I don't remember who wrote it. It was a couple of years ago, but it showed that over the last 40 years, there's been a predictable trend around overdoses and every couple of years, the drug just changes. So while we're all very, very familiar with the opioid overdose crisis right now, we need to be getting ready because it's a it's very likely going to shift to be a different substance. So if we are not ready with those medication alternatives um, and with other evidence-based um, practices for treatment, for those who want treatment, um, we're gonna find ourselves in the same situation all over again and perhaps worse. Cited it often. It came out from, uh, the, it was in the journal Science, my research is at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health and the CDC. And they were able to look at data going back to the 70s and they found that the overdose uh, death rate has been on an exponential 
trend since at least the 70s. The only thing has changed over the period of time is which drugs seem to be more in use at any given point in time. And it, and it really shows no sign of ebbing. Uh, and uh, uh, I've actually cited that often because everybody, uh, the, the, it's very popular to try to, to tie all of this problem to the prescription of pain pills. And it's important for people to realize this problem was going on long before doctors were liberally prescribing pain pills. And now doctors have dramatically cut down on prescribing pain pills and it's going, it's following that trend line. So mm -hmm. the, the, the real problem is at the end of the day is prohibition. Um, it, uh, 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 it looks like we're running out of time here. So uh, Corey, do you have one last thing you want to say? And then I'm going to, uh, you know, wrap this up. Um, no, I just going to hit on that point really quickly and, and say, you know, I mean, that is one of the big frustrations, I think, for myself and a lot of other people in this area is that we actually have really good medications, um, both to treat opioid use disorder and to um, reverse acute opioid overdose. You know, naloxone is kind of a miracle drug, um, but those medications aren't available everywhere they're needed. Partly that is, um, you know, due to funding constraints, but a lot of that is due to regulatory constraints. And the fact that that's still the case, you know, five years into a declared public health emergency um, is absurd and frustrating. And it is really scary um, because, like, you know, the pharmacist said, and like we've been saying, it could be something else. You know, if, if we were having the same thing with a potent benzodiazepine, the death rates would be even higher because there's no naloxone and there's no good sort of naloxone for benzodiazepine. There's not great medications for, for benzodiazepine, um, you know, use disorder. So, you know, the fact that we actually have these really good medication interventions, um, you know, no, no witnessed opioid overdose should be fatal. Um, because we know that naloxone reverses those overdoses. The problem is that, you know, the laws in, in lack of lack of funding and lack of making this a priority, um, you know, that's the barrier um, and it's addressable and it needs to be addressed. Well, um, sorry, we, we have more questions coming in. I'm sorry I can't get to them all. Uh, this, this is such an important topic. I, we could have gone on for a couple of more hours, but our time is up. Um, for those of you who would like to see this again or came in late. Um, this is going to be, uh, it, is, it has been recorded and will be uploaded to the Cato website, cato.org. Within the next 24 hours, you'll be able to access this. And then of course, you could also share it with anybody you think should see it. Um, I'd like to thank our excellent panel um, for helping alert the public about this this very important problem. And uh, I'd like to thank all of uh, the viewers at the, uh, for, for looking in and be sure to visit uh, th uh, this webpage that has resources to other uh, important articles that you might wanna read if you wanna learn more about this. Thank you very much.